You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thank you and good morning. My name is Greg Brandenburg. Eric Barton is the normal guy. But uh, as I say that, it doesn't seem like a fitting description, does it? (laughs) But I'm not the normal guy. Maybe that is a fitting description. Eric is off today um, vacationing with his family and uh, has asked me to step in, which I'm grateful to do. I always enjoy this opportunity. And so uh, thank you for being here, too. And um, we're going to study God's Word today, and I am looking forward to it. Again, I'm I'm not the normal guy. Don't do this by trade. Uh, didn't sleep in a Holiday Inn Express last night, so I don't know what qualifies me for this other than I've done this for, I actually used to do this for a living, but uh, I, I was a professional Christian at some point in my past, and uh, no longer, no, still, a, uh, still happy to, to take on um, uh, the pulpit whenever I get the opportunity, so grateful to have this opportunity. I've been asked to do part of the um, Attributes of God series. And uh, the attribute that I'm going to be tackling is eternality. So I hope you brought your lunch because we're just going to take a while. No, not, um, isn't that a cool slide? I've spent a lot of time on that. This is my title of the sermon, A Time-Bound Traveler's Guide to Eternity. Kind of cool, right? So this is, this is uh, my attempt at explaining the eternity and the eternal nature of God. And so I'm going to attempt to do that. Uh, however, if you saw the Avengers movie, anybody see the Avengers movie? So you know all about time travel already, right? So you're good to go there. I won't, no spoilers, no spoilers. Um, but I'm going to speak about God's eternality, which is really a high calling. And again, uh, I appreciate the fact that, uh, uh, that I've been given this opportunity, but I'm and, and kind of humbled by it because try to, to try to uh, give you my um, thoughts on the eternality of God is a dangerous thing. The uh, teacher is always uh, called to a greater judgment. Um, so to the extent that I'm able to convey scripture to you about the eternality of God, uh, then I've done well. So I'm, I'm asking you to just ignore what I say and check it with scripture and follow that, okay? So with that, I have a disclaimer because I thought this is kind of a high calling, so I probably should come up with some kind of legal disclaimer. So, so here it is. The views and opinions of the eternally existent creator of the universe expressed here are solely those of the presenter as developed within the limits of time and space while living behind the darkened veil of a sin-affected world. While considerable effort has been uh, exerted to avoid heresy, the listener should be aware of these constraints and others such as my tiny attention span and a love for rabbit trails and evaluate the content based on the timeless truths of God as revealed in His Holy Word. Caveat emptor, during the course of this presentation may be advisable to maintain some distance from the presenter just in case. So that's my, that's my disclaimer. Actually, let me begin with prayer, and here, here's what I'm going to do. This is kind of self-serving, but I'm, I'm going to pray for myself. And what I'm going to ask you to do as I pray is I'm going to ask you to pray for me as well. Uh, because I don't take this lightly. I'm, I got a sense of humor, but I, I honestly don't take this subject lightly, the eternality of God, and attempting to explain it and attempting to go through what God has shown me 
is, uh, is, a, is a challenging task, but uh, I'm, I'm going to attempt it, and I'm going to ask that uh, you would pray for me as I do, so let's pray. Eternal Father, we, we come before you today uh, trying to understand more about you. Uh, we know that you exist in the now. You have existed in the eternal past. You will exist in the eternal future. And we are finite beings, Lord. We are mortal. Uh, you created us, and you place limits on our ability to understand these things. Uh, Father, your word tells us, as we'll study today, that you have done this uh, so that we would fear you. And so, Father, I ask that you would help us as we look at your word, that we might revere you for who you are. I pray you forgive me for any moments where I may have gone astray with the truth. I pray that through uh, my conversations and through the Holy Spirit, you would uh, illuminate the truth to those who hear and drop the rest. Uh, Father, we thank you for this opportunity. I pray your blessing as we approach this. Uh, may we know more about you as a result of this, and may we fear you as a result of this. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> So uh, this is based on um, the kind of the, the, the text that we're going to center on is Ecclesiastes 3. So go ahead in your Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, chapter 3, and we'll, and we'll jump into this. Now, uh, if you've studied the Bible for any length of time, and I say Ecclesiastes, you probably know that's written by Solomon, and that Solomon liked to collect wisdom. And Ecclesiastes can tend to be somewhat fatalistic. Ecclesiastes is more of an observation of life under the sun from a human perspective. Well, that's fitting in, in, res, in this topic. Even though we're going to talk about God and the subject is God and the eternality of God, uh, what, we, what we have to understand that is our lives here under the sun. It's our time-bound traveler's perspective of who God is and, and God's eternity uh, that we're left with. <clears throat> so, Let's go to um, <clears throat> Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I'm going to read the first half of it, and, and then we'll jump into that. Uh, so this is what Solomon says, and, and he starts out by uh, quoting a song from the birds from the 60s, which I don't, I don't know the timeline, how that works, but anyway. Uh, there is a time for everything <clears throat> and a season for every activity under heaven. <clears throat> as, I'm, as I'm reading this, um, I'm straining to see the words on the page because I forgot my reading glasses, <clears throat> which I believe is also sovereignly appointed by God. Again, God is in control of all things. Some, some, some fun stuff happened in the first service with the, the computer broke, so we didn't have any slides, we didn't have any graphics, which is cool. Again, God is in control, and God is in control of Apple, and uh, even sovereign over Apple, right? So, so that happened. I'm an IT guy per, by trade, so I know that was God's sovereign plan to help me to understand the mechanics of time and the way things break down. Also to remind me as I forget my reading glasses about the mechanics of time and the fact that I need reading glasses, a constant reminder that uh, things are ticking down, right? So those of you who, who have reading glasses know what I'm talking about. So if I squint or if I get something wrong, just, uh, just say he's old and we'll go on. Um, there's a time for everything and a time for every activity under heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to sprout, a time to kill and a time to heal, 
a time to tear down, a time to build, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones, and a time to gather them, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain, a time to search, and a time to give up, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to mend, a time to be silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What Solomon's doing here is, in his perspective, he's looking and understanding that within time, it appears that God has set certain things within his sovereignty within time to happen at certain moments. You may have heard this passage, of course, it is a song by the birds, but you may have heard this recited at a wedding or something like that. It's beautiful poetry, but it speaks of the sovereignty of God within time to set certain things in motion at certain times. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen uh, the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity. This is kind of a mysterious little verse. He has set eternity in the hearts of men so they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. And again, we're going to elaborate on that a little bit, but that speaks somewhat of what God has done within us is that we are time-bound, we are born within time, and yet we have a sense of the eternal. Now that sounds like a good thing. God has definitely placed that within us for a good reason, and that is to revere Him. But as we talk through this lesson today, what we're going to realize is that we have, we have actually turned that to be self-serving and have created idols because of that sense of eternity, and, and we'll talk about that as we get into it. But that God has placed uh, eternity in the hearts of men, they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. And that's kind of the general theme of our lesson today. We get nothing out of this. That is, that is our struggles within time to try to understand this. God has done certain things that are inscrutable. They are, they are beyond our ability to understand certain things. And yet he's left enough in evidence for us to ponder it. And the reason that God has done that is so that we will revere him, so that we will worship him, so that we will think about him. And so I draw this outline based on, on Ecclesiastes, as that'll become kind of our central text as we go about it. But it's a very simple outline. Uh, the outline goes like this. I've even got a slide for it, if we want to see the slide for it. So this is uh, slide... Yeah, that's it. It's pretty simple. Uh, God is eternal. That'll be my first point. We are not. Point number three, therein lies the problem. Now, Solomon's outline was a little more fatalistic. I think Solomon's outline would be, God is eternal, we are not, deal with it. Okay, that's, kind of, that's kind of the Solomon version. But, but we'll talk about the fact that, the, that God is eternal, we're not, that presents kind of a tension within us. And, and there are some healthy ways to deal with that, there are some biblical ways to deal with that, and then there are some very poor ways to deal with that. And it creates certain things within us that I'll talk about as we get into this. But let's start with the first point. <clears throat> God is eternal. Uh, that's a, a line, if, if any of geometry students in the audience here, that a line has certain properties 
the most obvious one being what? It's straight. Good, Tony. Thank you. It is, it is straight. That's not the one I was thinking. But I see where you're going with that. Lines must be straight. That is true. What else? Property of a line. I failed geometry too. So what do we got? It's infinite. In, infinite, right? So the, the arrows indicate that this extends inf infinitely in two directions, right? So when we think of God, I think uh, maybe the best we can do in terms of trying to depict God's eternality is maybe the line, right? Because God is eternal and has always been, meaning that God is eternal in, in both directions, that, that not only does God exist now, but that God has existed eternally in, in the past and that God will exist eternally in the future. That is, that is an, the attribute of God that is eternality. I think it's represented by the line here. Uh, think about that, that God has always been. That there is not a time where God has not been. So before time began, God existed. And after time ends, God will exist. And that is the, that is the teaching of, of eternality in Scripture. It's, um, it's interesting to note how God wanted himself to be known and how God has revealed this aspect of his, of his uh, being uh, to his people. Um, God has, there are various names for God in Scripture. Um, when, when God revealed himself to Abraham, he actually didn't use uh, the word that we're going to talk about here in a second. He used El Shaddai, which means, which means the omnipotent, the uh, powerful one, the all-powerful. The all but when God is going to reveal himself to Moses, if you recall the Scripture, Moses goes up on the mountain, is receiving the law, and God tells him what he's going to give to the people, and then Moses asks him, well, when I go to the people with this, who shall I say you are? What is your name that I can give the people? That's kind of an interesting question for God, but Moses wants to identify him to the people. This is a people that have come out of a plural, plurality of gods, and Moses is going to, to give them the name of this God. Now think about it from God's perspective, if you will. God is going to give him a name to give the people, that's going to be the most significant thing that he can think of that these people are going to need when God reveals that to them. My wife and I, uh, Myra, ha we have a granddaughter. Uh, she's one, so we're first-time grandparents. And so uh, one of the things you do as first-time grandparents is you talk about your granddaughter whenever you get a chance. So I hear working it into the sermon, I'm a granddad. So which was cool. So we spent, um, as, as first-time grandparents do, we spent a considerable amount of time trying to figure out what we want our grandparent names to be. Anybody relate to that? We've got some grandparents in the audience. You want to you wanna have the perfect name. It's got to be cute. It's got to be catchy. And they have to be able to say it, right? You're, you're, when your uh, granddaughter gets to the age where they can speak, they have to be able to say your name. So you got to figure something out that, and all that works. Well, we came up with what we thought was the perfect one, right? Uh, Lolly and Pop. That's, that's how we wanted to be known by our granddaughter, Lolly and Pop. We thought it was cute, it was catchy, it was all perfect, we could market with that and run. So, uh, so now our granddaughter is now able to speak and is able to verbalize things. And so um, unfortunately, based on my best plans, they didn't quite work out. Myra is still Lolly, but I am Bop. So, <laughs> so we, are now, we are now Lolly and Bop. 
I spent a lot of time working on that, but that's okay. We, we of course, go with, I'd go with Bob. Mo, uh, so Moses asked God, what is your name? And God has to tell Moses his name to give to the people. Now, again, this is going to be the most significant thing as you think about what God is doing. is revealing something of himself in the name. Uh, the, the way that the Hebrew people thought about names is different than what we do. We, we think cutesy. They think significant in terms of the essence of this person. So God is going to give Moses something significant about his essence, about his attributes, that the people are going to need to know. And, and God gives him, interestingly enough, God is going to give him a verb, okay? Not a noun, but a verb. God gives Moses a verb to use. Now, I've, I've thought about that, too. I thought, that's clever. I should have thought of a verb to give my granddaughter, like, like he who will pay for your college education, or some kind of, kind of verbal meaning there. But God gives Moses, and it's very simple, and it's, it's one word in Hebrew, and, and the word is Yahweh. And, and that is a, it's a verbal uh, it's, a, it's a verb, and, and it means um, I am. It's, that, it's, that, it's, a, it's the being verb. Uh, so, so God reveals to Moses his, this verb of being. But the cool thing about the word Yahweh and the way Hebrew works is you don't have to have a different word for a past tense and a different word for a, a future tense. It's the same word. So the word Yahweh could be translated I am, but it could also be translated I was, and it could also be translated I will be. Now how cool is that, that God chooses a word that is true of himself, that God is and was and will be. It it is the essence of God's being and his eternality. What God is saying to Moses is what I want you people to know that I am the God who always was, I am the God who is, and I am the God that always will be, Yahweh. I think that's the coolest thing. Uh, some, some trivia about that uh, Yahweh, and this is a, a kind of a tragic deal. That at some point in the Jewish faith, um, they, they believed that the name Yahweh that God gave them to use to speak about himself was so holy that they couldn't speak it. So they do not use the, the word Yahweh, that that they consider the holy name that is unspeakable. And so they typically will, will write the word God, but they'll use underlines instead of letters and things like that, so they don't write the whole thing out. Or they'll use the word Adonai. Adonai is typically a translation of the word Lord, and it's more generic, and so they can speak that, but they can't speak Yahweh. Now, at, at some point in the, in the history of translating this out, it's a difficult thing. As you can see, there's no, there's no vowels. There's no vowel pointings in this, so hard to pronounce. Uh, at some point, as the, as the writers of, uh, are interpreting Scripture or trying to translate Scripture and bring it out, they, use, uh, they add vowel pointings from Adonai and, and insert it into Yahweh, which is where we get the word Jehovah. And so you might see Jehovah written in your Bible, um, but that's actually a rendering of the word Yahweh. Uh, another interesting note is in, in your Bible translation, you may note in the Old Testament where it says Lord, if, if all the letters are capitalized, uh, that, is, that is the rendering of the word Yahweh. So, so you'll note that in your scripture now. Um, so that is, the, that is the name that God chose to give Moses. And again, it speaks of his eternality. Now, and now if we fast forward to Revelation and we take a look at Revelation uh, 
another interesting thing happens, I think that's on the next slide, is, is there is the Alpha Omega passage. Now, again, this is Greek, not Hebrew. Now, in Greek, they don't have the same word that means uh, uh, present, past, and future tense. They have to use different words. But, but the rendering in Revelation, it means the same thing. I am the Alpha, the Omega, uh, Jesus says, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Again, same God, same concept. We had Yahweh in Hebrew. This is how it's rendered in Greek. But that idea of eternality is there, that God exists, has always existed, and will always exist uh, in the future. Uh, So God gives that to Moses. So other thoughts as I've pondered this in terms of of, uh, eternality. When you think about God's existence and you think about that God has always existed and you think about uh, infinity, what is, what is one plus infinity? Infinity, right? You can't, you can't add to God. He is eternal. You can't add to God and you can't subtract from God. God, uh, in that sense, is, is, is no older now than he was a thousand years ago. God is, is no older now than he was 10,000 years ago. And 10,000 years from now, God will be no older then than he is right now. God is the same yesterday, today, forever. Uh, that attribute is actually called immutability. God is immutable. In other words, he does not change. He does not evolve. He does not, to be, he does not need to be improved on or subtracted from. God is immutable. The fact that God is eternal and unchanging should be a comfort to us as we ponder that. Uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, the attributes sometimes um, get listed out, but you'll note that this idea of eternality kind of becomes a baseline for some of the other attributes. Um, in Deuteronomy, it says, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. That idea of being eternal is a wonderful thing, hard to wrap our minds around, but when you think about God being a refuge, or God has, has his arms underneath you, it's comforting to know that this is the eternal God uh, that has his arms underneath us. Again, that idea of, of being eternal starts to, to uh, weigh over into the other attributes. In the, in the next slide, I think I've listed some of the omni-attributes of God Omniscience means that, that God is all-knowing. Omnipresence means that he's everywhere. Omnipotence means that he's all-powerful. But when you think about it, his attribute of eternality is very much a part of each one of those. That God is all-knowing means that not only is he all-knowing now, but he was all-knowing in the past and is all-knowing in the future. He knows what happens now, but he will know what happens in the future. He knows everything that happens in the past. The fact that God is omnipresent means geographically God is everywhere at once, but also in time God is everywhere at once. And again, omnipotence being all-powerful would require that the the God who is above all gods is um, um, uh, uh, eternal, that uh, that his eternality is a part of his existence. So God is eternal and and has revealed himself that way to man, even by using his name Yahweh to speak of his eternality. Point number two, though, is that we are not eternal. That should be fairly obvious to all of us, is that we don't exist forever. Uh, we are not 
eternal. And so I've got another geometry test for you. If the top is a, a symbol is a line, the bottom symbol is a ray. Very good. So different, right? So different. A ray is eternal in one direction, but it has a point in time that is beginning. That's us. So it's, a, it's, a, it's appropriate to say that, that God is eternal. It's more appropriate to say probably that we are everlasting, that we, we have a point in time that we began and will continue, uh, but that's more everlasting than it is eternal. Uh, we are not eternal. And so if I can read the rest of Ecclesiastes, I'll pick up here in verse 10, because this is, again, Solomon's observation of life under the sun as, as he observes, I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Do you see that again? That I've, that's a repetition of what I read earlier. But do you see our dilemma here? We live within time. Time should feel very natural to us. And yet, God has placed eternity in our hearts so we have some recognition that there is an eternal state. And that creates some dissonance within our existence here under the sun. So uh, I know that there, verse 12, I know there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know everything that God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. That's the immutability part. God, God does it so that people will fear Him. That's the existence and, and, and eternality and our cognizance of it presents this, uh, this sense that God wants us to look up. God wants us to, to look at Him. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before, and God will, take the, will call the past to account. Verse 16, I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justness, wickedness was there. And I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity and a time to judge every deed. God repeats something of the beginning of the chapter. But he had said at the beginning, there is a time and a season for everything, and that God is sovereign over that. But one of the problems as Solomon looked at life under the sun is there's wickedness and, and there's injustice. And so he had to try to figure out, why does this exist in time if a sovereign God is over all of these things? And what he, what he came to the conclusion is, is that God will deal with it, essentially. Uh, verse uh, 18, I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like animals. In what sense? You have to ask yourself, verse 19, surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits both. As one dies, so dies the other. And that's, and that's his, he's not saying that, that man is not, uh, doesn't have an eternal soul. He's just saying that from the perspective of life under the sun, animals die, so do we. Uh, all have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. And when he says meaningless, what he means there is not unlimited. Everything is temporal. Uh, everything uh, happens only for a short period of time under the sun in this life. All go to the same place. All come from dust and to dust return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down to the earth. So I saw there is nothing better for a person then to enjoy their work because that is their lot for who can bring them to see what will happen after them. So there it is. God is eternal. We are not. We are dust in the wind. 
Ever heard that song, by the way? Dust in the Wind. It's kind of a cool song. I like that one. I used to, I used to listen to Kansas Live. I was a big-time Kansas fan growing up, so this song spoke to me. I started to, to follow the, the career. as written by a guy named Kerry Livgren. He wrote, he wrote this song. He didn't intend it to be a song. This, this is a song that becomes probably the most iconic rock acoustic song ever written, and he never intended it to be recorded. He never intended it to be a song. He was an electric guitar player, and he was trying to learn how to play the acoustic guitar, and he created this finger-picking exercise for himself. And so he was playing it in his studio one day, and his wife walked by and said, that's really pretty. And he said, you sh she said, you should make it a song. He goes, nah, it's just a finger-picking exercise. So he ignored it. She kept saying it as he continued to do it. Eventually, he relents, put some words to it. He said the words flowed very naturally. He said, I wrote it probably within five or ten minutes. And so we get dust in the wind from a finger-picking exercise that Carrie Livgren never intended to be a rock song, which I think is a cool story. What's even cooler about that is that Carrie Livgren uh, uh, yielded to the calling of the Holy Spirit and gave his life to Jesus Christ. Carrie, Carrie, not at this point in time when he wrote Dust in the Wind, he was actually doing a lot of searching in terms of uh, faith and religion, and he, had, he was seeking the truth about God um, but he was looking at some Indian, uh, Native American religions, and this, these were words from a Native American poem, Dust in the Wind, that he used. It wasn't biblical. He used this from a Native American poem. But in his seeking after God, eventually, Kerry Livren came to faith in Jesus Christ, and, and I think it's a, it's a cool story. But anyway, all that, just a little bit of trivia in terms of Dust in the Wind. Same thing, though, right? So even, so even if we understand dust in the wind, we don't need to understand from Scripture. We understand it, and even a Native American understands it. This is a general revelation from God. As we observe, as Solomon observed, like the animals, we live for a period of time and we die. We are dust in the wind in that sense. So how do we, how do we make meaning out of that? How do we, make, how do we, how do we understand that? Now, now, to an animal that they probably never think about that, right? But for us, because God has placed eternity in our hearts, there is something foreign about the experience of death. There is something foreign about the experience of time, which is, which is curious. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this. Uh, there's a slide on this one, too, if you want to read this. We are so little reconciled to time that we are even astonished at it. How he's grown, we explained. How time flies. As though the universal form of our experience were again and again a novelty. It is as, it is as strange as if a fish were repeatedly surprised at the wetness of water. And what would be, that would be strange indeed, unless, of course, the fish were destined to become one day a land animal. This is what God has done, placing eternity within our hearts so that we know that our existence is not just here, that there is something beyond this life. We have a sense of that. But that, that sense of dissonance is what creates discord within us. And God, God places that within us to cause us to look up. I'll give you a little personal story about this because I experienced this about five years ago. I, I didn't realize it at the time, uh, but I, I'm a pretty confident guy. And I, uh, you know, five years ago, things, life was pretty smooth. I had, I had life ordered. And I, and I have this sense, which I now realize is a bit of an idol, I have, a, I have this sense that I can control time. We, we all do. We, we have a sense that we can bend time, control time, whatever. We can waste time. We, we have some sense of being sovereign over that domain, which is really not true. 
Uh, but I had life where I wanted it about five years ago. Um, things were going along quite smoothly, and I was just living my days, enjoying life without much um, thinking about that. Uh, God saw that idol in my life, and what God likes to do, God likes to destroy idols. And so God came after that idol in my life. Uh, my, my mother and her husband were uh, living in uh, Nevada at the time. Their health began to decline, and they were living in a mobile home and were brought to live here in Tyler for essentially my wife and I to try to take care of them. Their health is failing. Uh, they don't need to be in, a, in an RV for sure living, uh, and they had no finances. Their finances were a wreck. And so anybody who's dealt with an, an aging parent knows the stress of that, particularly when you don't really have the resources in place to be able to deal with that. So that brought some, some stress uh, to my life. The other thing that started to do was it started to create in me the thinking of, I see what they have gotten to a place in time where they really don't have any savings. They really haven't prepared for this well, and they really don't have the ability to work or earn a living at this point, and that's not good. And now I have to help them. So I began, that began some introspection in me, and I started to take kind of uh, some inventory of my own assets, and I started to realize wow, I'm, I'm a bit behind, that if this should happen to me, I don't know that I'm prepared for it. And I don't, you know, the, the typical thing is I don't want to be this burden on my children. So that started to produce some um, angst within me as well as I started to ponder where I was in life. Now, as I said, my life was going pretty smoothly. My kids were healthy. Uh, we had a wonderful home. Uh, I, was, I was working the same job for about uh, 20 years. I, I, I felt very competent and confident in my employment. At the same time, um, I decide to change professions. Now, I got this other stuff going on with my mom, and I got a lot of other things going on in my life, but again, I'm overly confident in my ability to handle that, and I thought, well, it's a little bit of stress, but I can handle it. Let's see what happens. <laughs> so, so I changed jobs, and I go from a place where I've been for about 20 years where I'm, I could, I mean, I knew it like the back of my hand to go play, to a, a place, I'm an IT guy, I go from a, uh, a smaller, medium business type environment to a very large enterprise type environment. Uh, so there's that adjustment. I mean, you add a zero to everything I was managing where I came from, and that's what I'm managing now. And uh, so I've got that stress going on in my life. Add to that, my oldest daughter, I've got three, uh, say three girls, my oldest daughter and her husband who are living in Tyler, I, they've never lived apart, my, my daughter's never lived apart from me. There's something about that first child connection too. They announced to me that they're moving to Nashville. So now I've got a, now my, my perfect existence that I'd worked so hard to build, right? My bubble, right? My, my bubble is breaking. Now my daughter's moving off. My middle daughter says she's getting married. So now we're going through, my oldest daughter is going to move off the day after my middle daughter gets married. So we're, so we're getting ready for my middle daughter's uh, uh, wedding. My youngest daughter is graduating from high school all at the same time. Now all of that is... Uh, was a lot to deal with. But what God showed me through that was that I had built some idols in my life, and what God brought to me to break that was not just anxiety, but I experienced an anxiety disorder. Now, if I say anxiety to you, we've all experienced anxiety, and we usually call that stress. But if you've experienced an anxiety disorder, you know what I'm talking about. 
Anxiety is awful, but typically goes away. Anxiety disorder means you, you get to live with that bad boy every day you wake up. You've got this experience of dread and fear, and it can even uh, rise into panic attacks. Um, and you get to live with that every day. And, I, and, and, and here I am, I've, I've been a believer for a long time, uh, you know, solid, solid in my faith. My family's good, all this stuff going on around me, and yet I get tripped up by this thing. This, this anxiety disorder. And it was terrible, and it was dreadful. But now that I can look back on it, and, and again, God, it, it was God's design for me to experience that, and now I can thank Him for it, because now when people tell me that they have an anxiety disorder, I don't, I don't shrug that off. I know exactly what that means, and how miserable and terrible that is. Uh, but now I look back at it, and I also realize that God brought that because I had established this idol in my life that I thought I could control time, and God needed to destroy that idol. And he did it by bringing this anxiety disorder so that every day I would have to depend on him. Uh, and, that is, and that's what it is with, ang- with an anxiety disorder. You wake up every day, and you wonder if you're going to have what it takes to get through the day. And I keep thinking about the, as, the, as the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt and they were provided for with manna. God didn't give them manna ahead of time. He gave it to them every day. So every day they woke up, they had to wonder, is, are we going to have enough food to get through the day? That's kind, of, that's kind of where I was in this anxiety thing. God brought this to me so that I would stop depending on myself and realize that I had built that idol. God destroys it and causes me to look at him and start to depend on Him every day that I'm alive. So, praise God that I understand what that is, uh, but that God brought me through that experience. And, and so, so, God is eternal, but we are not, and that creates problems, that creates dissonance. This one was one that I had to go through. Uh, point three, therein lies the problem. So let me talk about some other things. In terms of our understanding of time and how we think about time, um, in regards to this, there, there are some things that I, I would consider errors. For instance, there, there are certain t- uh, teachings within the history of, of certain religions that have tried to deal with time. And there are certain uh, religions that even exist today. Those, they would even be considered Christian religions. Uh, but certain faiths believe that time is an, is, is an illusion. Uh, that, that time doesn't really exist. It's just an illusion that you're under. And, and to make yourself better or more successful or more healthy or whatever else, you just need to start weaning yourself away from that illusion. Now, I don't know how to do that, uh, but that's one errant teaching regarding time. Uh, time is very much an experience, and it's designed by God. And again, as we saw in Ecclesiastes, that designed by God is that we not rely on ourselves. Another uh, teaching that is errant regarding um, time that has existed in the past is that, that uh, there, time has no goal. It is an endless repetition. It just, it just repeats. Uh, it is an infinite recursion. It just keeps going and going and going. That is another view of time that we see is not biblical. Uh, I think it was Charles Sagan who said that cosmos is all there is and all there ever has been. It. Solomon Ecclesiastes scripture tells us clearly there is an existence outside of this one. There is a timeless 
this one. We have a hard time understanding it. That's by design. So, so that uh, thinking is, is not biblical as well. Uh, trying to divine the future by telling magic, tarot, or whatever uh, is not in scripture. Again, the reason being is because once again we're back to that little thing, right? If I can control it, let me do it. I don't need God. God wants us to need Him. God wants us to revere Him and depend on Him. So anything that you're doing that isn't intended to control time so that you think you're the master of it, trust me, you may have some success in it for a period of time. God, if God loves you, if you are His, God will break you of that at some point. It was an awful thing. I pray for you that maybe it's more gentle. It was difficult. Um, but it got my attention for sure. It broke that idol from my life. Uh, other things that I think are different in terms of our thinking, even with theology, is, is the fact that God knows the future because He knows all the possibilities. He knows all the variables. Uh, I think last week we talked about that idea of foreknowledge. Isn't it the fact that God looks ahead of time and can define it as if there's another existence of eternity, kind of like the time machine that we can advance back and forth? There, especially there is no future. Future doesn't exist yet, right? So if God knows it, that means maybe God designed it. It's like a movie. How do you advance in a movie? Well, because the movie's already recorded. There is a sense in which God is finally sovereign over all of time. He knows the future because he sets the future. Now, I don't want to get too wrapped around that because does God know that I'm going to study the next minute? Has he, has he divinely appointed that? I don't know the answer to all those details. What I know is that I know God is sovereign over all of time, past, present, and future. And yet there is a degree to which I am responsible for the decisions I make, and they're not uh, dictated to me by this guy. That's the teaching of Scripture. Now, that that's a tough one to, to figure out, but that seems to be the teaching of Scripture. By the way, that's, that's tough in a Western mindset. A lot of Scripture is more written in an Eastern mindset. They can, they can accept those rules of thinking as being true at the same time. So, we got two. But this idea of the future um, and thinking through that is interesting. And the other thought, as, as we as, as deal with them, they're, they're trying to pretend to understand, they talk about free will, and they try to pretend free will, they talk about the will. God exists outside of time. And that, that's usually the end of the conversation. God exists as if it's that life of people, and God exists outside of time. God does exist outside of time. That's not a confident thought for those who exist within time. Does God exist within time as well? And the answer is most definitely yes. Here, and here's one area that I can point to to show you. God exists within time. I know God exists within time. We remember that God existed within time on a regular basis here at the church. And it's an important symbol to understand. But I know that God exists with us now. There I am in their presence. So this God of, of eternity, who is not bound by time, chooses to interact with us. 
said, that's kind of fun to think about. But, so where does it come to? So let's talk about the impact of things. How do I deal with, as a time-bound traveler, how do I deal with, what does the Bible expect me? What does God expect me in terms of the use of time? So here's some things and some scripture that I think are important. So number one, I should make the most of time. Ephesians, this is from Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16. It says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. That idea of making the most of every opportunity. The cool thing, again, in the Greek is, there's really three words for time, but these, these so there's a eon, which means a, a stretch or a, a period of time. And there's kairos and there's chronos. Chronos is a point in time. When we talk about chronos, we're talking about um, putting an appointment in your calendar. That is a point in time that you identify and you put a finger on. And I need to be somewhere at 12.30. That's chronos time. Okay? We, we deal with chronos time. But there's also kairos. Kairos is more qualitative. Uh, it still means point in time, but it's more qualitative. We have a word for what we would call we, we have a moment together. If I said we had a moment together, what would that signify? Well, it has to be a moment in time, but it's more an experience of time rather than a point in the calendar. Right? So Kairos and Kronos are used in different senses. In this passage, it's talking about Kairos. Be very careful that how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of opportunity every moment. Kairos, qualitative. Not chronos. That's important too. This one is don't be don't be a slave to your smartphone. Don't be a slave to your Facebook page. Whatever your calendar. You can be a slave to that. The idea is, is attempting to achieve quality time. The, the type of kairos time. Uh, is, is what's after here. Making the most of every opportunity uh, the days are evil. That, that making the most of every opportunity is, is the Greek word. It means, it means to purchase it out of the marketplace. That is, that is, I have an amount of time and I need to be uh, acting in and selecting out of time quality moments and being careful to do that. Uh, we, we know we have a limited amount of time. What, what causes to value my time, understanding that limit. Uh, if, if I, I don't know how it works with Adam and Eve, they had access to the tree of life. What would that have been like? Like, I don't need to worry about the future, I'll just go take another apple. Right? Just keep turning your life. Uh, so there's, I don't know, the time pressure just must not have been there for them. It was when they were barred from the tree of life because they took the other tree of life and evil. That must have created an amazing amount of anxiety. Imagine the next day you try to get to the tree of life to extend your life and realize you can't get there. What kind of angst and anxiety was created in them? This idea of, of knowing there is a limit causes us and helps us to value our time. Now, I'm, uh, I'm over 50, so I think that represents more value in time. Those of you who are younger, you probably have more time. I, 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 it's like it's money, isn't it? How do you value money? Well, when you, when you realize its limits, if you, give, uh, if you give a little child the option between a nickel and a dime, which one will they pick? A nickel, why? It's bigger. 
So the value money, we start to learn the value money, and, and we value it, and we start to realize it's limits. Right? If I have an unlimited supply of money, I can spend on whatever I want. I really value money. But if I know there's a limit to it, then I'll value it more. So, so valuing time is understanding its limits and understanding that I don't have all the time there is. That's a, a story I tell because I was told by a guy that I went to seminary with. He, he, was, uh, he, had, he was late to getting a paper in. The, the, the syllabus clearly said that, that if, uh, if you turn this in late, you'll get a zero. So he went to appeal this with his professor and said, I'm busy, I've got a lot of things to do, I just didn't have enough time to do it. His professor said, very wisely, very coldly, son, you have all the time there is. And, that is, and that's true of every one of us. We have all the time there is. We don't know the time that God has set for us, but we have all of it. How you spend it, we are expected to spend it wisely. How do we again? How do we increase our understanding, our value, of our time? Again, by understanding its limits. Uh, number one. Uh, the other thing is uh, the idea of uh, taking thought for the model, worrying about the model. It also raises us uh, in terms of uh, understanding time. It actually says it's better to go to the house in the morning than the house in the evening. Well, why would I do that? I would go hang out with people who are already friends in the morning over death. Because it says, this is the end of every man, and the living should take it to heart. So it is a good thing, from a spiritual perspective, to reflect upon my end. And it helps me to value the time that I turn around. Understanding that time is not limited on this life, I'm expected to treat it wisely. Make the most of every opportunity, every kairos, and use it for the glory of God. You have all the time there is. The Bible says in Psalm 90, teach me to number my days. That's another cool way to value time. Teach me to number my days. What does that mean? It's a practical way to do this. And that is, uh, I didn't do it because I scared me. But I was going to call my life insurance agent and say, based on your actuarial tables, how much longer do I have? Right? That's the way they interest. You, you, you're paying based on the amount of time you have left. <laughs> um, so your actuarial tables are, are the, based on averages. This is how much time you have That's why you pay what you pay for insurance. And I was going to take the, the number of days I have left in my insurance. And I was going to put a countdown on the slide and show you the countdown how much time I've got left. Does it help you to value your day? One example that someone gave again, another guy I went to school with, got one of those um, stamps that would that would decrement every stamp or something. So he set it to the number of days that he supposed to have left, and they got a calendar out and started counting every day, and it would decrement so he knew how many days he had left. Again, not recommending that, but it's an interesting way of applying this first. Keep me in number of my days. I don't have limited time. I value what I do have. Understand that God expects me to make the most of every opportunity. Uh, so, uh, I'll 
end with this thought, and, and as we study these attributes of God, that it's uh, amazingly hum- humbling to me that God uh, has shown himself in this way, and to, to think about this attribute of eternality. I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity that this church has given to let us get up here and talk about this. Uh, it's, it's a hard thing to wrap your, your mind around, for sure. Um, but here's the thing. We, it's not, I get caught up sometimes in, in uh, the verbal or the, the mental uh, like this. I like to ponder it, like to figure it out. And, and it can become a mental exercise. It's not meant to be that. The attributes of God are not given and not revealed to you so that, you, so that it would puff you up in knowledge. So that you can, so you can stand like a smarty person in the room. That's not the intention. But the attributes of God are given for you to ponder so that you can reflect on God. up within our time-bound existence, and get caught up in stuff that goes around us, and we forget to look up God. So, so if, if for a moment, this causes us to look up and, and reflect on who God is, that's a good thing. Uh, I'll end with this quote. This is by a guy named Louis Spears. It's a lot of big words, but follow it, because at the end, it includes it. He says that there is a danger that the human conception of and be satisfied with the apprehension of the divine performance and not go on to behold the more consequential features of his designed person. So what he's saying is we don't just see the attributes of God and think that we've got it because we've got all the facts that we've memorized or whatever. It, God is God means it for more than that, that there is a relationship involved. He says Sir Isaac Newton has expressed it thus, it is not eternity and infinitude, infinite being. That's the goal. He summarizes it this way, which is on the screen. It is not enough to discern the works of God or his characteristics. The heart must come to know God as a person. That's, that's it. It's that when God gave his name Yahweh to Moses, it wasn't so that he would ever repeat it. It was too holy. It was for him to use for a personal relationship. God has within Christ has 
to question.